0: Hello and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and see if we can learn a little bit more about their background. Joining us today is Eric Koo, who is an associate professor from Hokkaido University. Very nice to speak to you today, Eric.
1: Hi, Chris. Nice to be here. Uh,
0: we're actually recording this in December, so how are things up there in the uh, in the frozen north of Japan? Well, it's it's
1: my second year here uh, in Sapporo, Hokkaido, and it feels like it's a warmer winter. Um, there mm. isn't as much snow as I expected. We'll see how it goes, you know, in the, in the you know as winter goes on.
0: <laughs> well, I wish you the best of luck. I, I have the good fortune of living down here in Kyushu, so we very rarely have to change our travel plans or or work plans based on the weather but um yeah uh, keep a shovel handy the book we're going to be talking about today is teachers of multiple languages identities beliefs and emotions and the first question i'd like to ask you is because we we might not know um, much about those things, identities and beliefs and emotions and how they might be disconnected or connected in any way. Uh, what what was your focus of the book?
1: I would say I, I began with identities. And so my, my, uh, th- this, this study uh, came from my PhD dissertation. Uh, and early on, I was most interested in language teacher identities. Um, and then I sort of expanded you know, as I was collecting data and interviewing participants, um, realizing there's, like, a lot more um, there. Um, I would also say that in the beginning, I didn't actually focus on teachers of multiple languages, and it was through mm-hmm. conversations with colleagues and, and participants that I I kind of realized, like, this was a really interesting group of teachers or an interesting type of teacher, maybe.
0: Mm. Did you did you have a a certain focus uh, of the the type of teacher? Was there something in your research that uh, gave you a focus as you went through your PhD research?
1: Yeah. In in the beginning of the book, I have an anecdote where, um, you know, I was talking to colleagues. Um, I was uh, previously teaching in Taiwan and my it was an English department. So, you know, I knew my colleagues were English teachers or had been English teachers. Um, But after talking with them for, you know, just having conversation with them, I realized a lot of them actually had previous experience teaching Chinese. And I was really surprised by that. Um, It just, it seemed like this was this previous life that they had that they never really talked about. You know, it wasn't really in any of their professional bios, you know. Um, And it was sort of this like, oh, yeah, well, that, that happened a long time ago. Or yeah, that was this something i did when i was in my 20s or 30s and and i just thought you know what a shame you know we we don't when we when we find or when when we're talking about like bilingual speakers people who speak more than one language or multilingual speakers we don't really think of you know if you know if you know multiple languages we don't really think of that as like oh yeah that's just something i did back then or you know we really think of that as a, a as a kind of skill and asset that you have after i started paying attention to this i realized that there were a lot more cases like this where um, teachers who have experienced teaching more than one language um, but we really don't have a way to talk about it and it's really not talked about much so that's that's kind of how I, I started on this path of, of focusing on teachers who's, who've taught mul- multiple languages
0: <clears throat> well you, you you bring up the point of cases and uh, chapter four chapter five chapter six are Anne's narrative Megan's narrative and Harako's Uh, narrative. Why did you select these people, uh, these teachers for uh, inclusion in the book? Was there something that was instructive about their experience?
1: You mean these three participants in particular? Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Great question. Um, So I think for the book, I wanted to include participants from a wide variety of backgrounds and contexts. I was teaching in Taiwan and doing my research in Taiwan, but I didn't want this to be only about Taiwan because I I ended up finding out that this was a lot more prevalent um, in many places around the world. Um, These three participants come from very different backgrounds. One is primarily from Taiwan, who also taught in India. Uh, One is primarily from Japan, who also taught in the US. Um, and one is primarily uh, taught in the U.S. and Germany, actually, and and they also cover different languages. So uh, the participants in as a group uh, there's English, Japanese, Chinese, and uh, German. So so anyways, I wanted to contain a wide breadth and just to show that teachers of multiple languages um we're, we're we're talking about teachers from a wide wide variety a wide range of backgrounds to ca- kind of cover a big um range,
0: I guess
2: yeah
0: well, is there anything uh, in your analysis uh, in relation to the where the person was born to where they actually go and teach in in a second language or, or in in multiple languages?
1: Well, okay, so I wouldn't say there's anything specific, but i would say um there are certain uh patterns and trends okay so mm-hmm. I, I just just in this example um i guess one subgroup of teachers of multiple languages are teachers who have taught who teach english in their home language in their home country and then they go to the us for a year to teach their home language uh, so mm-hmm. for example so i so i'm split uh The US government, uh, uh, Department of State has a program where they try to attract language teachers from other countries to come to the US and teach at a university for a year and teach their home language. And they kind of become Mm. uh, like ambassadors, informal ambassadors of their culture and their language. And they get this like teaching abroad experience for a year. Mm. But many of these teachers have never actually taught their home language. Uh, Many of them are English teachers in their countries and so coming to the us this is their first experience being a native speaker teacher for for yeah. mm-hmm. and and teaching their home language there's a there's a study um from mutlu where they're talking about turkish teachers who've had this experience so that 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 trend of like having taught english in your home country and then moving uh, or not moving but you know, going to the U.S. for a year to do a like a teaching abroad program. That mm. that there's several several studies um, looking at this experience. It's quite a specific and unique experience, but you know, mm. it, it it is quite interesting. Um,
0: so that they would be uh, teachers of English. Uh, they would be Turkish teachers of English in America, not Turkish teachers uh, of Arabic in America.
1: Uh, so they would be Turkish. EFL teachers in Turkey Mm. and then they apply for this program Uh, but in the U.S. they don't want them to teach English they want them to teach Turkish.
0: So these are speakers of Turkish who go to America what language are they expected to teach and what are some of the experiences that you have uh, noted?
1: Mm. Yeah so when they go to America uh, at, at American universities, they're expected to teach uh, Turkish for a year. But many of them have not ever taught Turkish before. Uh, in, in Turkey, they were English teachers. Um, but you know the you know, and so one of the experiences that's very interesting is that many of them are surprised that being a native speaker teacher is not as easy as they thought. or, being a native mm. speaker teacher doesn't automatically mean that it's easy. Um, and many of them actually fi- find that they were better teachers when they were teaching English um, and sort of have a new mm. um, confidence in, you know, the professionalism and experience that they had in teaching English because they realize like, oh, I, I don't really know how to teach Turkish or, you know, mm. there are a lot of things I don't know about tur- teaching Turkish um, and just being a native speaker teacher um, doesn't quite cut it. Um, so that's a kind of a, again, in, te- in, in talking about identity um, and beliefs, mm. it kind of challenges prior beliefs that they have and also like who they are as uh, EFL teachers um, and kind of think, feeling like, oh, I, you know, my, my, I actually do have a lot of professionalism and experience mm. Uh,
0: mm.
1: in EFL teaching
0: well it, it it's the question of, of, of whether the, the the skill of teaching is related to one's native language or uh if it comes from your actual skill as a teacher and i i bring you to your uh quote at the beginning at the beginning of your book that says no teacher begins a graduate teacher education program with a blank slate so i believe the um idea behind uh, what this quote is saying, is that you come with a lot of cultural, um, social, moral background before you even start the job of being a teacher. So, yes. could I could I ask you uh, what you think your background is and how it affects your language teaching and then if we can expand it to how it affected the way that you produced this book, so where are you from? What, what's what's your background, and how do you think it affects your teaching?
1: Sure, sure. Um, that quote that you just talked about is from Wolf and DeCosta in two thousand seventeen, mm-hmm. and I I I love that quote, and and, and and I started the book with that quote because. Um, with teachers who've taught multiple languages, well, you know, when we meet, uh, uh, let's say an English teacher, we just sort of assume that that's who they are and that's who they've ever been. We don't we don't really ask like, well, have you taught other languages or what has your pre- previous experience been? Um, so so that's kind of the, the idea of the quote is that some of us may have all this other previous experience that we're bringing to the table. Uh, I was born in Taiwan, um, and when I was very young, my family immigrated to America and mostly grew up in America, um, went to college and did my master's degree in TSO in America. And after that, I moved to back to Taiwan um, to teach English. Mm. Um, and that was my first experience in academia being like a, a professor. While I was there, um, about two years in, I decided to do my PhD there, and also in TESOL, yeah. And I completed my PhD there. So I, I came from a very—I um, I would say my 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 language background or the context that I grew up in was a lo- there was a lot of like heritage language learning, where mm-hmm. I was expected to learn and maintain uh, my family language, which was Chinese, uh, but in the American context, where outside of my family, I was using English every day. I've personally never taught multiple languages. I've only taught English. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if I have the confidence uh, to. Well, teach- have, well, have,
0: well have, have you have you taught in a classroom that has multiple languages? I'm I'm assuming in the University of Hokkaido then you know there's going to be English, going to be Japanese, there's probably going to be Korean, Chinese. Uh, how does your background? with a multiple language um, heritage uh, affect your decisions about the languages that are used in the class?
2: Mm,
1: yes, yes. Yeah, so sure. I, um, both in the US, Taiwan and Japan, I have taught in classrooms where, you know, students are speaking multiple languages. I would say um, in the beginning of my career, when I was in my 20s and, and still very inexperienced, I think there was a lot of insecurity about how I was perceived. So, for example, if there were, if I knew mm-hmm. if there were any Chinese speakers in the in the, in the in my classroom,
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: I really really tried to avoid speaking Chinese to them, um, or or mm-hmm. even revealing that I could speak Chinese. Almost, I I think I didn't want other students to feel like I had some kind of, uh, you know, special connection with them, or um, right. I was favoring them in any way. Um, and I felt like I had to hide that part of me. And later on, I you know now now nowadays, as you know, more ex- more experienced. and I, th- I think I've sort of transitioned from that into being I think I'm you know pretty open about my own language background. I think if they're Chinese speakers, that's fine and great. Um, uh, and i'm more I'm more open, but but I'm also still pretty conscious about like not. Try, I guess, just not trying to exclude others. I will say, I remember um, early on um, when when I was trying to hide, you know, speaking Chinese, I remember once I had a student from, um, I'm, I'm thinking it was Mexico. Um, and I was really, I got really excited because I had learned Spanish when I was in high school and I'd never really used it. And I got really excited. And during break time, I just really wanted, I just tried to use some Spanish. Mm-hmm. And i caught myself i was like oh wait like that's interesting you know i'm really trying to not use chinese and then um uh, when there's spanish here i'm just like really excited to use spanish and i just sort of there's a moment of reflection there you know what what was happening with with me you know um
0: well i, I think that I, I, that keys into the um uh, the point of of the book in terms of like language identity and when we we move to another country, but we have other experiences. I mean, I I have to check myself quite a lot. I mean, I've, I've lived in Japan now for twenty two years. From time to time, when I have I have a take on something that's going on, I have to remember. Oh well, you know, where do, where is this coming from? Uh, is this coming from the fact that I come from the UK or my understanding of what's happening in japan and um yes and from time to time my wife has to take me take me aside and say that that's not right mm-hmm. and I, I have to say yes you're right this is your country it's not mine now we have established basically where where the contents of the book is coming from uh i think that our listeners would like to know a little bit about the process of how you put this together. So you say this comes from your PhD uh, research. How did you organize it down into the chapters that you have decided and how did you get it published?
1: This book and and this study is is a narrative inquiry uh, study, which means that uh, we're, you know, I'm interested in uh, collecting stories from the participants and treating the stories as a form of of data, learning about their lived experiences. So in the book, there is uh, three chapters, each one focusing on uh, the participants. There are three participants. So there's a chapter for each participant about their story. um, And then afterwards, there is the analysis or the discussion part of of the book. In addition to, just interviewing uh, the participants for you know, uh, their stories. Um, I also collected photos, uh, photographs. and the, this, this uh, it was called photo elicitation. Um, so the, the purpose of the photographs is to help help the participants talk about their teaching experiences in their lives. And so b- before the interview, I asked them to collect anywhere from six to 12 photos relating to their teaching experiences uh, in, in multiple languages. Um, and you know, I, the photos could be literal, like, like a classroom or a textbook, but they could also be abstract or more um, you know, metaphorical. But basically the, the photographs were a tool for, to help them uh, talk about their experiences more vividly um, something to refer to, um, and also because the teachers were coming from many different contexts, I thought it would be more interesting to to see where they're coming from because they're you know different countries and uh, different language backgrounds. So so you, the the photos are sort of interspersed in the narratives in the book. The most difficult part of the book, and the part that maybe I'm the most proud of, is is actually the literature review, because there's actually I would say i would I would say there's really not much literature, uh, because I think the the there isn't really a term, an established term to refer to teachers of multiple languages. Um,
2: mm-hmm. So oh.
1: you can't really like search in Google Scholar, you know, a specific term and find like, oh, what what are other scholars talking about teachers who've taught multiple languages? so so getting this literature review was, and And just compiling it was a bit of a feat. Um and I had to I yeah. think some very creative ways. So, for example, i I realized that one area of research that does talk about teachers in multiple languages is multilingual education. And so mm-hmm. uh, I, I, if I search that, um you know, you come up with a bunch of studies that, may not be related to teachers of multiple languages. And so Mm -hmm. you just have to go through each study and see, look at the participant section and say like, okay, Mm -hmm. are they actually talking about participants who've taught multiple languages? Also looking at research about like non-native speakers and non-native speaking Mm -hmm. teachers. Also, there's a lot of studies there, but again, they're not referred to as teachers of multiple languages. They're just Mm -hmm. referred to as non-native speaking teachers. The time period between Finishing my dissertation and then actually compiling the book was about um, I see there was about three years. <clears throat> In this time period, there's new research coming out. i would I would see new research. I was like, oh, that is that would be perfect for this literature review. So I ended up adding a lot more to the literature review uh, than uh, for the book version um, compared to the PhD version. Also, I think when I was trying to um when I was revising the dissertation to be a book, um, I had to keep in mind that this is going to be a wider audience, you know, not just the committee members, not just my PhD advisor, but this would be applied linguists in our field. Um, and so I, I think I had to set the kind of set the stage for that, especially in the beginning of the book, and make this make make the book read more like uh, make the manuscript read more like a book and not just a dissertation study, yeah.
0: Well, I, I'm, I'm very interested in that point because I, I never went down the route of um, publishing my PhD thesis as a book, but I understand your idea of uh, having to understand your audience. Did you receive any guidance on how you should uh, change your thesis, augment it with things that people who are not experts in your field would like to read how did you do that because because I never did that
1: so I think there's the, the very first stage where you submit uh, and, and I think for 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 any listeners out there who are interested in in publishing a book the first stage is writing a book proposal mm. usually there are <clears throat> guidelines for you know what to include in a book proposal from the publisher's website. Um, in this place, in this case, is, is multilingual matters. So on their website, they have a very detailed and specific guideline for how to write a book book proposal. Um, and then when you when you submit the book proposal, they I think part of it is assessing whether or not this is going to turn out like a book, right? Like right. So I think that's the first stage is me thinking through like, okay, is this is this actually going to be suitable for a book length? type of work. And because this is a narrative inquiry and there are these, you know, there's stories and um, the photographs and so I think it it lends itself uh, more easily to being a book. So I I don't think I had to edit that part very much. Um, Again, I think it really was the beginning um, where I think I had to um, set the stage a bit better, um, a bit, maybe a a bit of a wider net just so that um i'm kind of including in and and i guess maybe i'm kind of um making it easier for um readers who may not you know be familiar with for for example familiar with um identities beliefs and Mm -hmm.
0: emotions you just said uh talking about the use of the book do you think that this is something that is only applicable to teachers who are in these situations or do you think that this is possibly a, a teachable text? Uh, I, I, well, as I was reading, it was available to me. I, I saw narratives and um, stories that will probably connect with even students, even at the undergraduate level, but definitely at the master's level. Do you think that this is a, a text that could be used as a teaching text and not just as a text that teaches uh, in your situation can connect with?
1: Yeah, I mean, I cer—I certainly hope so. Um, I think uh, in terms of teaching, you know, I can certainly uh, imagine this being used in um, like teacher, uh, teacher ed- language teacher education. I think, I mean, to my knowledge, I don't think in current grad school programs where, you know, grad school programs that are training that are training people to become language teachers or language teaching scholars. I really don't think this is a topic that's being addressed. I, you know, I th- I'm thinking about my own experience, but just
2: hmm.
1: um, even more hmm. broadly. And uh, I think just to just to even um, just to address it, I think the book can offer um, an overview of like what do we know in uh, applied linguistics in, in in the language teaching research. What do we know? About teachers of mm. multiple languages, um, I think it can also offer accessible stories about what it's like to teach multiple languages, and mm. have um, you know prospective language teachers reflect on that, um, seeing if they can connect with that. Yeah, so I I I mean I mean I hope this becomes a text that um, teachers you know would see as being useful, you know, um, and instructive.
0: My next question is is uh on a purely organizational level, uh in relation to your book. We've we've already talked about the first quote that you used in relation to tabula rasa for you know the blank slate uh, in your first uh chapter. How did you select the quotes that you used for uh each chapter? Um, did you select them because They reflected your philosophical ideals or what the chapter actually included. The quote that you used for uh, chapter one makes absolute sense when you're talking about a blank slate or uh, tabula rasa and um, not coming to the classroom without any experience whatsoever or with no philosophical background. Uh, the quote that you use for chapter two is that we need to understand that teachers are political and philosophical persons uh, who have identities of their own. And uh, was that a quote that meant that uh, you know teacher trainees should address these things in their in their own background? That they should investigate their own understanding of what they're bringing to the table i, I think it i think it has a, a similar meaning to the idea of we are not tabula rasa but um could you lend some comment to that
1: sure so the, so the quote uh that we're talking about is from Varghese et al in 2005 this is a a cla- like a classic uh, you know highly cited study on language teacher identity. At a time when I think language teacher, teaching teacher research wasn't as prevalent. I think most of the research was still on language learners. And so this was one of the earlier studies that really focused on language teachers and and who the language teachers are. Um, In the quote, uh, it says that, you know, in quote, in order to understand language teaching and learning, we need to understand teachers. And in order to understand teachers, we need to have a clear sense of who they are. Unquote. Um, I, I use this quote because, um, again, two, back then in two thousand five, it was trying to direct attention and more focus on language teacher research. And I would say, in the same way, I, I'm in my in in this book, I'm I'm trying to sort of direct attention towards uh, more specifically language uh, teachers of multiple languages. Um, You know, in the quote, they talk about understanding teachers. And Mm. I think Mm. one of the goals for my book was trying to understand teachers of getting, you know, teachers of multiple languages. Mm. Um, Who are they? What are their experiences? Um, How do they see their own experiences? I think just a a very simple example is that, um, in when I'm thinking about my own grad school studies uh, in my master's and PhD in TESOL, both in the US. And in Taiwan, um, I don't really know if any of my colleagues had ever taught multiple languages. I, I think,
2: mm. as
1: we were mm. in a program for TESOL, I sort of just—I I just assumed they were all English teachers, and I never thought to ask. Um, I don't think the topic was ever brought up in class, and so just that something as simple as that is that just bringing this into discussion in you know mm. to our awareness. Mm. It's like the first step to really understanding um, their experiences. Um, teachers of multiple languages.
0: In your experience, uh, let, let's take the your experience now in uh, Hokkaido University. How often are there teachers of multiple languages? How often are there students of multiple languages that you have to give consideration for uh, when you're when you're planning your lessons? Mm.
1: Great, great question. Um, so I would say, uh, in our faculty, that the, my colleagues, there are actually, um, I, there are actually like three or four colleagues who have taught multiple languages, mm. um, which is um, very interesting. Um,
0: well, it, it's, it's it, because it's a kind of proof of concept of the book that you have written, which is, uh, you know, read and understand. And that you know, these, these stresses occur?
1: You know, because when I first, um, you know, talk to my, talk to my colleagues, you know, I'm like, oh, you know, what do you, what do you teach? Or what do you research? So uh, again, a lot of it's like, oh, I teach English or I teach uh, Russian. It's only after I mention my research, you know, they'll ask me and I was like, oh, I, I'm, I'm really interested in teachers who teach multiple languages. And they're like, oh, well, I want, you know, I've taught, you know, and then that's when it starts coming up. Right, this. Right. <clears throat> yeah, it's kind of a shame that it's not something that is um, more that comes up more easily or more naturally. Um, It sort of has to be like, yeah, I really have to dig into somebody's professional history. Um, mm. And even, you know, let's say on their CV, it might not be very apparent. Or, you know, when um, teachers sub- sub- submitting resumes, it's not it may not be very apparent. Particularly here with my colleagues um, at Hokkaido University, there are um, the the there there I think there are more languages being taught here. Um, this is the largest um, institution that I've ever taught in, mm. so there's a wider range of languages, um, and um, I found that interesting too. Uh, you 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 this also um, impacts the kind of students that I'm teaching. I, I, mm. you, Again, because of the this is the the largest institution i have taught at, we we attract a lot of international students. I teach mainly two different types of classes. One is the um, like first year English class for Japanese students, uh, Japanese freshmen, all ja- Japanese students. It's all actually it's always all Japanese students. But then I also teach some seminar classes, and those are those are elective classes, and and that's where mm-hmm. we get um, international students, a mix of international students and Japanese students. Now, um, most of my colleagues don't actually come from a TESOL background. Um, they come from other, you know, various disciplines.
0: And so, <laughs> tell me about it.
1: <laughs> for many of them, um, they sort of approach their electives as a way to really hone in on their research expertise. Right.
2: Um,
1: and then, you know, uh, I mean, for, for me, uh, and a lot of them will say, like, oh, you know, they, this is, uh, you know, their chance to maybe not be, so focused on EFL and just you can teach you know whatever their academic expertise is and then for me I I try to be um, as inclusive as possible so what that means is like you know trying to make the class um, easy enough in terms of the like the kind of English that I'm using Mm -hmm. easy enough to understand for the Japanese students who want to take the class but also trying to make it intellectually challenging enough mm. um mm. for the um international students who, who don't find english challenging right but they might
0: well yeah, but but yeah, exactly and that's and that's the point you have to think about it on, on 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 several levels because you, you're trying to aim for the median student uh, but the median student has a uh, vastly different experiences so when you're choosing things like lesson materials textbooks um ways of testing things like that uh it 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 does require this but it it does require this background in understanding that these things are different and uh culture and uh experience and uh you know previous linguistic backgrounds are necessary considerations when you're choosing what you're going to do uh in your classroom not just a one-size-fits-all uh, I've always done this for the last twenty years, and i'm going to I'm going to keep doing it to To finish our uh, interview today, I would like from you, based on your based on your background, is there any advice that you would like people who are in the uh, Tsol community or TEFL community to uh, to take away from your book and also, please feel free to make a sales pitch?
1: okay, yeah, sure. I find that, as I'm entering or you know at, at my workplace uh, with my colleagues or even um as I'm you know getting new students every semester, I often have um, a lot of preconceptions about who they are or what they know or don't know, and I find that basically when I'm asking questions to get to getting to know them, I'm always very surprised um i'm always i I think that's one of the um yeah, really, one of the um, best ways to improve my teaching is asking questions and kind of getting to know who who they are, the st- students. Um, I I found, as, as I've, you know, I've taught in the US, I've taught in Taiwan, I've taught in Japan. Um, for me, Japan has been a bit challenging because I'm not really right. good at Japanese. Um, but also, I think sometimes um, Japanese students are a little bit afraid of using English. I think it's it's very nerve-wracking maybe for them. I, I, sometimes I feel discouraged from getting to know the students very well. I'm discouraged um, uh, from doing small talk or asking them, you know, about their life outside of the classroom. Um, but I've also found that when I do ask um, and, 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 you know, have a bit more patience and a bit more, you know, kind of accepting the awkwardness of like trying to figure out, them trying to figure out on what they want to say, I I find that I'm I'm also I'm learning so many new things about them, and 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 that it is really informing my teaching. Um, mm, mm. Oh, and uh, okay, well, in regards to um, my book, I would say the very, mm-hmm. <laughs> very, um, a very uh, easy or or basic uh, thing that I would sort of ask or challenge language teachers to do in in whatever context you are is to ask your colleagues you know um have you ever taught um other languages before um it's something that we don't think to ask and when you do you might be surprised to find what kind of teaching histories your college colleagues might have and the interesting experiences those bring to to their current teaching so you know i think that's something that's something that um teachers anywhere can do and my attempt to really push this as a field that we need to pay attention to. I really wanna, I'm really, really proud of the literature review section because I really do think there hasn't been a comprehensive overview of um, what we know about language, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, teachers of multiple languages. Mm -hmm. Um, So I talk about not just identities, beliefs, and emotions research, but I also talk about what do we know, like what what programs are out there? Because there are um, like graduate school programs um, in Europe, in Brazil, um, in you know in, in in many parts of the world that are catered towards teaching multiple languages, and there are teachers um, all around the world in different contexts who are teaching multiple languages. So um, I would really, if if anything, if there's one thing I hope anyone takes from the book or 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 goes to the book for is, is to really look at the literature review and you know really see, you know, the that that we do this is existing research. You know, we we there are many, many scholars that have talked about it, and we just haven't yeah. had a place where it's been collected together and and we haven't really looked at it as um a cohesive. Uh, field of like a subfield of language teaching research
0: well i think that's a that's a great place to to leave it because i think that uh having reviewed the book um that's exactly right and uh even in a place like japan where they don't uh have a large cohort of international students there are certainly people who have three or four different languages accessible to them and it's something that we we should reference and we we should and we should think about so uh, i think it's a a very useful uh new consideration in the field and uh thank you for your work so we've been speaking today with uh eric ku who is an associate professor at hokkaido university and uh thank you very much for your time today eric and i hope we have the chance to speak again in the future All right. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.